0: All right, y'all, good morning. Uh, welcome to Grace Church. My name is Andrew Brewer. Um, I get to lead the Grace uh, student group around here, and I'm part of the teaching team. Um, whether you're here with us today, joining us on Facebook Live or from the podcast, uh, welcome this morning. I'm um, really excited to have you here. Um, as we're kind of coming back in and getting settled down from dropping our kids off and um, whatnot, I just want to take a couple um, seconds just to take some time to be still, to be quiet, still our minds, still our hearts. Um, Then we're going to uh, pray the Lord's Prayer together. So if you would take just a minute with me. Let's just be quiet and still. Let's pray. Can I get that slide up there, Donnie? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. All right, y'all, so the year was 2003. I was a freshman in high school, and I somehow found myself at a George W. Bush rally in an airport hangar up at XNA chanting W, 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 as we like to say down here in the South because we don't want to pronounce all the syllables in W as we are chanting such things. I was there at the invitation of my grandma. Um, I, at the time, had pretty much no political knowledge whatsoever. Um, I didn't know what George W. Bush stood for. I didn't know what his opposition stood for. I was there because my grandma thought, what an awesome opportunity to get to see a sitting president speak. And sure enough, how often do you get a chance to do that, right? But here we are, I'm in this crowd, and I find myself caught up in the emotion caught up with these people who are there, and they are so excited to see George W. Bush speak, to hear him uh, lead on the troops at this political rally as he seeks re-election for his second term as president. Looking back on that, honestly, it's really amazing to me how quickly I jumped on board with the crowds there. Now, like I said, I had no political knowledge like, I, I, the only thing I knew, really, was that he was the sitting president, and I knew that he was a Republican, the other guy was a Democrat. That was about it. Um, and this isn't really me talking about George W. Bush or, you know, anything like that. It's no judgment on him. It's more an observation of myself. How in the world and why would I jump on board with a crowd so quickly when I really have no idea what it is I'm supporting? And as I think about that, some, several questions come to mind. Um... You know, was it the fear of being different? Like, did, as a freshman in high school, that's like the name of the game, right? You don't do anything that makes you feel different from the crowd. So as I'm sitting there and I'm looking around, I'm like, you seem like nice people. Yeah, I'm going to jump on board with them. I don't want to be the weird guy who's not chanting with them, not cheering on this political candidate. So I'm sure that's part of it. Is it partially a belief that, wow, look at all these people? They look like me. They sound like me. They seem to have the country's best interest in mind. How could this many people be wrong? They must be right, right? When that many people gather together and seem to have one shared belief, of course they're right. I'm going to jump on board with them. How could they be wrong? Of course, you can say that on either side of the aisle. The interesting thing to me is how quickly I could be swayed and bought in to supporting a man that I did not know. I did not understand anything about what he stood for. Yet, for some reason, I'm caught up, and I am all about George W. Bush at the end of this rally. It's amazing, right? On today's scene, as we look at the condemnation of Jesus, it made me think about this political rally that I found myself in. I started thinking, the scene really isn't that dissimilar from a political rally. Sure, the outcome's different. But there's a lot of similar themes that play out throughout today that I experienced back then in that rally as a freshman in high school. So let's dig in and see what that is. So the text for today is in John 19. We're starting in verse 1, and we're going through uh, 16a, the first part of 16. So Let's read this together. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged severely. So if you remember from last week, Jesus had been brought before Pilate by the Jewish leaders and here he is he's already been questioned once by Pilate and Pilate said I want to release this guy to you it can either be him or Barabbas and the people chose Barabbas so here we are with Jesus still under trial and Pilate has him flogged severely the soldiers braided a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they clothed him in a purple robe They came up to him again and again and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him repeatedly in the face. And Pilate went out and said to the Jewish leaders, Look, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no reason for an accusation against him. So Jesus came outside wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Look, here is the man. When the chief priest and their officers saw him, they shouted out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said, you take him and crucify him. Certainly, I find no reason for an accusation against him. The Jewish leaders replied, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard what he said, or what they said, he was more afraid than ever. And he went back into the governor's residence and said to Jesus, Where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know I have the authority to release you and to crucify you? Jesus replied, You would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. From this point on, Pilate tried to release him. But the Jewish leaders shouted out, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat down on the judgment seat in the place called the Stone Pavement, Gabatha in Aramaic. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover about noon. Pilate said to the Jewish leaders, Look, here is your king. Then they shouted, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate asked, shall I crucify your king? The high priest replied, we have no king except Caesar. Then Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So what can we say about this passage? If I'm going to be honest with y'all, there's a lot of stuff in this passage that makes me think that a Judge Judy episode got merged with a Jerry Springer episode. And you got these people arguing. you got someone up on stage. you got all this drama going on around this scene. And a lot of it just doesn't really seem to totally make sense. You know, on the one side, if we're going to play out this Judge Judy scenario, we've got Pilate, right, who's sitting up there as judge. We've got the Jewish leadership and the crowds who are the plaintiff. And we got Jesus as the defendant. The charge? Well, Jesus has been charged with healing the sick, raising the dead, preaching a message of hope, redemption, and love. Essentially, being the Messiah that these people have been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years. Their proposed punishment? 20 hours of community service. No, wait, sorry, misread that. Uh, Death on a cross. Golly, that escalated quick, didn't it? But in all seriousness, y'all, while this isn't exactly a Judge Judy episode, thankfully, it does have really interesting power struggles, a really interesting storyline, an interesting plot going on. And I think there's more there than what meets the eye. We've got three powers at play. We've got Pilate, we've got the Jewish leaders, the religious establishment, and we've got Jesus. Jesus. The way those three interact is what we're going to be looking at today. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what each one of those powers, those kingdoms that are represented in the story can teach us. So first, we're going to take a look at Pontius Pilate. We could flip that next slide and get Judge Judy off our screen. Yeah, there we go. So here's the scene um, that we're faced with. First, we're looking at Pontius Pilate. So who is Pilate? Next to Jesus, he's probably the most famous person in this um, scene that we, we know of. He's the Roman governor who's been sent there by Emperor Tiberius, and he's there to essentially keep the peace in the Judean region. Now, according to uh, history, he's a fairly bloodthirsty guy. He's one who's not afraid to lay down the law, drop the hammer, or whatever you want to say about him. He is not afraid to keep the peace by whatever means necessary. He's also the antagonist, the way a lot of us think about it. Whenever we think about Jesus' crucifixion, his condemnation, who comes to mind? Pontius Pilate, right? He's the guy who hands him over, despite washing his hands of this whole thing. He's the one who's really in charge and who hands him over to be crucified. And it's really easy for us to dehumanize him and think, this is the bad guy. This is the one who gave Jesus over to the cross. And while that's true, there's a lot more going on here than what I think we sometimes like to see, want to see, can see. So, as far as powerful people in the room goes, he is the most powerful, right? He's got armies at his command. He's got the ability to enforce capital punishment at will. He can pretty much do whatever he wants. Yet, this passage says, he's the only one who's mentioned when it says, he is the one who experiences fear. When the Jewish leaders say, this is the son of God, he claims to be the son of God, Pilate feels more fear than ever, it says. Why? Why would someone with this much power feel fear in that moment? I think there's a number of reasons. One, he's got a very angry mob at his doorstep, right? For a guy whose job is keeper of the peace, to have an angry mob about to potentially riot at your doorstep, it's kind of a scary thing to do. You're kind of not doing your job well if you've got a riot on your property whenever your job is keeper of the peace. So his job is kind of in jeopardy. He's a little bit worried about, is he going to be able to do it well? Is he going to be able to quell this angry mob? So there's there's that fear that comes along with it. Additionally, here he is facing, as the passage says, an innocent man. He can't find a reason to accuse this guy. So he's got an angry mob wanting this innocent man dead. And despite his previous history, despite the fact that he's not historically been afraid to enforce the law and to do what he wants what he wills he's not particularly eager to send an innocent man to death additionally we don't get this in this account but in the account given in Matthew of this trial it says his wife comes to him before Jesus is brought before him and if you remember his wife had a dream the night before about Jesus She comes to Pilate and says, do not have anything to do with this man. Whatever her dream was, which we don't know, it obviously gave her this indication of, this is not someone we want to mess with. There's something more than meets the eye to Jesus. And you don't want to touch him. We need to stay away from this. So if you think that's not lingering in the back of his head, Ooh, I'm sure that that's part of the fear. Additionally, they're saying that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. Now, coming from a Roman point of view, the idea of gods and sons of God, of a God, I should say, is not really a foreign idea. They have stories of sons of God coming down to earth, and they're deities in and of themselves in the Roman worldview. Now, he's probably thinking to himself, okay, if this guy really is a deity, if this guy really is as powerful as what these people claim to be, not really having the understanding of there is only one God, but even knowing that this guy might be a God in his worldview, that's a scary thing. What if I accidentally put a God to death? What if I accidentally do something to a deity? I can guarantee you that's part of his fear. And finally, the Jewish leaders throw on the cherry on top. They say, how can you support this man who claims to be a king and still say that Caesar is the only king? They're bringing this idea of treason. And all of a sudden, he has this fear of, oh my gosh, what if word gets out that I let a man who could potentially be charged of treason walk free? What does that mean for him? What does that mean for his bosses looking down on him? That's not just his job, y'all. That's potentially his life in jeopardy. So he's got these pulls, these fears, and these different directions coming at him. And yet he has to make a decision. Is it any wonder that he's afraid? Is it any wonder that they make mention of that, that he's never been more afraid? I don't think so. So, what does he do? I would argue he does what most of us are prone to do. When we're faced with a a variety of fears, a variety of problems, we solve the most immediate, the one that's going to give us instant gratification. Sure, he might be the son of God, but I've got this mob on my doorstep. I can touch them. I can feel them. I know this is a problem. So I'm going to do what I need to do to save my job, to save my own life. I'm going to sentence this guy to death so that I can be keeper of the peace. I can fulfill my role, my job. Does this excuse his decision? Of course not. He still sentenced the Son of God to death, or at least released him over to them to be crucified. But it does humanize Pilate in a way that I think we sometimes don't want to see him as purely human. Interesting thing about him, about this fear that he experiences, is that it often reveals the things that we most value, the things we most worship. So for Pilate, what does he give into? What are the fears that he gives way to? One's about his job, one's about his life. I think this can indicate to us that his job and his life are probably, in this moment, the most important things to him. And whether we like it or not, y'all, we have more in common with Pilot, I think, than we sometimes want to admit. We have fears ourselves. And like Pilot, we can let those fears drive us, even define us. We fear losing our jobs. We fear our kids growing up and going down the wrong path, right? We fear our friends judging us behind our back. We fear that we're not going to measure up in some way, whether at work or at home or um, in some hobby we do, whatever it may be. We fear that we're going to be alone. What do you fear? We see what Pilate fears, at least to an extent. We see how he reacts to those fears. tells us a lot about what he values most. So what do we fear, and what do our fears tell us about what we value? How do they direct our actions, our decisions, our thoughts? And y'all, when Jesus showed up on his doorstep, Pilate may have had these underlying fears before, but he was forced to face them when Jesus showed up. Not only that, but he had to make a choice. Not just realize that those fears were there, but he had to act on them. He didn't have a way out. Would he choose to believe in and follow Jesus? Would he choose to believe the claims that Jesus seems to be making, the fact that he is king, that he is powerful, that he is the Son of God? Or would he give way to the fears that he holds? You know, I think Jesus has a way of doing this with all of us, at least from my experience. In my life, I've seen this. When he shows up, he doesn't always leave room for you to fear both him and other things. Well, we can either believe that he is king over all things, including our fears, king over death, the eternal king, or we can believe that he's not. Now is it an instant transformation that we just all of a sudden don't fear anything whenever he shows up? Uh, that's not been my experience. But I do think that as he continues to show up and we continue to let him into our lives, that he's going to expose these things that we fear. He's going to show us his power over those fears, and we're going to be faced with choices throughout our lives. Are we going to carry down the path that fear would take us, or are we going to choose Jesus and make courageous decisions? So, second kingdom, second power that we see are the religious leaders in the crowds. So, I just want to get this straight. So the religious leaders in the crowds, if you remember from last week, they showed up at Pilate's doorstep, and they refused to step inside, right? Because stepping inside a Roman household is going to instantly defile them. They're no longer going to be considered clean by their religious customs. So instead, what do they do? They stand outside, they wake up Pilate early, and they start shouting things, right? This is Jesus. We we want him dead. They start plotting his death. They start shouting things like, crucify him. Things like, we have no king except Caesar. How does a group of people get to that point? A group of people who say that they worship God, that they follow the set of laws. How do you get there? Again, I think that we see fear at play. Fear is not just something that Pilate experiences. But I think that we see fear in the people, the religious leaders, the crowds that have shown up for this. Whereas Pilate's fear, I think, was more of an individual thing, when we start talking about the religious leaders and about the crowds, I think we're talking more about a cultural fear. A fear of uh, something bigger changing, a bigger shift. See, because Pilate didn't really have to deal with Jesus until he showed up on his doorstep a few hours earlier, right? But the The religious establishment, they've been butting heads with Jesus for years, y'all. Jesus has been flipping their religious establishment on its head over and over and over again. And by doing that, their authority is also being diminished. Not only that, but the religious leaders of the day are the only people that Jesus seems to speak out aggressively against. Jesus has arguably been the biggest threat to their culture and their way of life since stepping onto the scene with his public ministry after being baptized by John several years prior. So, of course, they're scared. This man, through the miracles, through his teachings, has slowly been building up a following, a crowd, and he has been challenging every single belief and way of life that they have had over the past three-ish years. Their way of understanding the world is slowly crumbling around them. Not only that, but this culture is very much a shame culture. Shame is something that keeps people in line. It's something that prevents them from breaking the law, from doing things that would put them on the outside of their group of people. The only problem is, Jesus doesn't seem to be all that afraid of shame. He is constantly stepping over those boundaries, isn't he? He's constantly doing things that no good, upright Jewish man would do in his day. There seems to be nothing that is able to contain him. And this strikes fear. So they must act. They've been working on it for a period of time, as we see throughout Scripture, leading up to this condemnation. They're constantly looking for ways to catch him, red-handed, to find a way to diminish his power, his authority, his following. But they can't seem to do it. So they're left with one final Hail Mary, so it seems. They've got to dispose of him. And you know what? What better way to dispose of him than to let the Roman occupiers, the already guys that they see as bad guys, do the dirty work for him? So they show up, Pilate's house, and they say, all right, this is it. Here you go. We need this guy crucified because we need to save our good, upright, religious traditions and customs. Now, I want to stop here because there's kind of two routes we can go. One, we can keep walking down this road and say, yeah, the Jewish leaders were wrong. How could they possibly do such a thing? How could they be so blind?" To what's going on. Kind of the easy route, in my opinion. Jump on the bandwagon and say, though, I would never do that. Never. I would never condemn Jesus. I would see him for what he was and not be like these religious, upright fools over here. But who are we kidding? Remember back to that political rally I told you about. Imagine you walk up to this scene. This one right here on the screen. Perhaps you've known of Jesus. You've heard of him. Most people at this time seem to have at least some understanding of who he is. But the Jesus you see in the scene is weak and diminished. By this point, he's not even upright like we see in this picture. He's bloodied, he's beaten. He seems broken, most likely. He seems weak. And yet you've got these two powers, especially the religious leaders that you've known and respected most of your life if you're um, a Jewish citizen. And they're screaming, this man is blasphemed. This man is treasonous. This man is breaking our laws. He is not one to be trusted or followed. He's crazy. And they seem loud and powerful. It's your tribe. It's your people that you know. Who are you going to side with? I think, we like to think that we jump up there with Jesus and say, yeah, I'd stand with him. But I think a lot of us, most of us, all of us, would be sorely tempted to jump right in with a strong, powerful group, the ones that we know, the ones that we have trusted most of our lives. Because after all, how could this many people with this much authority and this much respect be wrong? we are all tempted by popular opinion, by people we respect. If we are tempted to lie to ourselves and think that our friends, the people we surround ourselves with, don't have any influence over what we think, what we believe, they do. It's important to be aware of that. You know, as we look at Jesus in this situation, it brings us to our third power. As I mentioned already, he seems weak. At a surface level reading of this passage, he gets the least amount of dialogue, the least amount of attention, it seems. He doesn't seem to hold much power or influence or sway or anything over the situation. He is at the whim of whatever pilots and crowds want him to do and be. He seems stuck, but I think there's a lot more going on here than what meets the eye. Look at the only dialogue he has. His one line comes in verse 10 when Pilate asked him, where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said, do you refuse to speak to me? Really? Really? Don't you know I can kill you? Don't you know I can release you? Why would you be quiet in front of me? And Jesus does as Jesus often wants to do. As John said last week, he says what he wants to say. He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. What does this mean? A couple of things that I think are of note here. The only authority, he says, over him is one that comes from above. What does that mean if the only authority that he answers to is from above? From God, as we could probably rightfully interpret that saying. Well, it implies that Jesus carries an authority that's greater than anyone else in this scene, in this room at the time. His authority supersedes and precedes every single person in this story. It makes me think of John 1.1 where he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus seems to be saying here, I am of a higher power, a higher authority than you could possibly imagine. Yet, yet, From above, authority has been granted to Pilate. Why? Why would Jesus subject himself to Pilate's authority in this scenario? seems to be saying it comes from above. I think it's because Jesus knows death awaits him. This is why he came. Death on a tree. And Pilate is the one who can and will make that happen. Therefore, Jesus in this scenario submits himself to that authority, knowing that it's not really Pilate's authority, that this is God's authority that he's submitting himself to. Jesus in this moment doesn't act panicked like a man without control is often wont to do. I don't know about y'all, but if you've ever felt out of control of a situation, how often do you just sit back and seem unfazed by it? That's not my experience. That's not my reaction. When I feel out of control, I jump in and I want to fix. I want to do something. I want to make it better. I want to control. I want to be in charge because I don't like not having control. I don't want to be wrongfully accused. I don't want these things to happen. But that's not what we see with Jesus. What does that tell us? Again, I think it just reinforces the fact that Jesus knows exactly what's going on. That Jesus is not the one who's being swayed by whatever authorities happen to be in the room at the time, that Jesus knows something more than what they could possibly know. He knows what's at stake. He knows what's about to happen, and he knows it must happen, this death, impending death. It's what he came to do. Because, y'all, the true power and authority of Jesus the one that can conquer death and sin and all things, is in motion in this moment, in this scene. And it's about to be unleashed in full. Jesus knows that condemnation must come, that he must die on the cross. The prophecies that God has been giving utterance to through prophets for hundreds of years before this point, they are being fulfilled in this moment. No power can stop God from doing what God is going to do. God alone is in charge in this moment. And this moment is taking place, the greatest moment in history, in the midst of chaos and argument and debate and plotting of death. And everyone else thinks they're in charge, everyone else thinks they're going to have the final say. But only God will the one and only one who brings order and peace and hope and love and freedom is preparing to take his rightful place as king. And there's no person past, present, or future who can stop him. And y'all, that's where we're gonna leave it today. This is King Jesus. Not in a mocking way like the Romans were doing, but this is the true eternal king on display for us today, getting ready to go to the cross as we're going to talk about next week. And y'all, as we get ready to um, enter into a time of communion and prayer and giving, we're going to have an opportunity to come up here to this table. And y'all, what I want to offer today is an open table at King Jesus' table. As you take this bread and this juice today, remember that we serve the one who is in charge. Who's really in charge here? God alone. Thank y'all.